blue chasm of the tongue of the ocean passed beneath them, and then the coral-toothed white surf of the barrier reef along Andros' eastern shore. The interior of the largest island of the Bahamas chain was a green mat of vegetation, broken only by the meandering creeks and great marshy lakes dotted with mangroves. The plane came out at last over the desolate west coast, where the land shelved almost imperceptibly into the vast shallow seas of the Bahamas bank, and the patterns of sandbars were like rifled dunes beneath the surface. Ahead and on both sides of the horizon faded into illuminable distance, merging finally with the sky and no line of demarcation, and seeming to move forward with their progress so that they remained always to the center. It was only by looking down at the varying terrain of the bottom and the shifting patterns of color that it was possible to tell the plane was moving at all. The colors themselves were indescribable, Ingram thought. He had to see them to realize they could be that way, and he didn't believe that anybody ever entirely forgot them afterward. He wondered if Mrs. Osborne was enjoying them. He glanced aft, and she was leaning back in the seat with her eyes closed, smoking a cigarette. Well, maybe nobody would ever tell her it was an expensive ocean. This is the Pink Smoke Podcast. Ahoy, everyone! That's 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 all my nautical terms right there. That's the last <laughs> one, so I'm not going to be doing it throughout the episode. Um, but I'm here with my co-host, Mr. Christopher Funderburg. My name is John Cribs, and we've got a fun double feature here today. Uh, brought to us by our very special guest, returning guest, uh, filmmaker, and uh, collector of excellent, awesome paperback books, Mr. Stephen Scheel. How are you doing today, sir? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, and thanks for having me back and to talk about one of my favorite authors. Yeah, this is uh, this is a kind of an embarrassing uh, kind of uh, blind spot for me. Charles Williams, the author we're going to be talking about today, the ones we've had you on before, are kind of more obscure authors that you know you kind of are an expert in but charles williams is someone who's been adapted so often in films and uh, so famously you know of course we'll be talking of course about the botched orson wells film that was uh you know uh, spawned from one of these books we're going to be talking about but i've seen these movies again and again i've seen the dennis hopper uh the hot spot and i've seen the Truffaut adaptation and i've seen the um uh, the, the the dead calm movie by philip noyce of course and uh, you have never read any of these books until now. And so I'm glad that you were kind of uh, tweeting about these books and talking about these books on social media so that we kind of had an excuse to do this. What's your own kind of personal uh, history with Charles Williams? Have you um, been reading him for a while? Have you read most of his work? I've been reading Williams, yeah, for, I don't know, probably the first book was six, seven years ago, I think, uh, which was A Touch of Death, um, which... Uh, I always think it's got a, a slightly comical title to me because it sounds like a, you know, like you go to see a doctor. What have I got, doctor? Oh, just a touch of death, um, which, which is not the kind of tone of the book because the, the the book is is very kind of noirish and very much like um, the hotspot. Hell hath no fury. One of those earlier kind of noirs that, that Williams did, and I, and I love the book. I love the book. It's just this absolute kind of. Um, you know, it's a it, it's a gold medal. Uh, he wrote for gold medal, the, the the publisher throughout the fifties, and this is one of the gold medals. And it's a great noir, classic kind of noir, where you've got this this guy who gets hooked up with a woman who is bad news for him, but he thinks that he can manage it. You know, it's and he can't. You know, it's it, it it's got that classic kind of noir setup of somebody getting themselves in too deep and not being able to get out. Um, and then I just started collecting the the books because I, you know, 
whenever I find an author that I, that, that I like, I, I try and track down everything they've done. So I've managed to track down most of his books now. I think I've read the majority of them. So I think there's, there's something like 22, I think, and I've read like 17, 18, I think. So, um, and, and they fall into a few kind of categories, which I'm sure we'll kind of get onto <laughs> later on. We, you know, there, there's a kind of swampy ones, there's a kind of noiry, you know, southern town ones, and then there's the seafaring ones, which is uh, what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, listeners can't see, but I, I am distracted by <laughs> the books in the background I'm looking at right now. The amazing collection that you've got back there. I love that you just kind of latch onto a, an author that intrigues you and then you just kind of pick up everything by them. That's great. Uh, but like, as you said, we are going to be talking about specifically the nautical noir phase of William's career, uh, specifically the books Aground and Dead Calm, which are sister novels, kind of a sort of sequel <laughs> to yeah, each other. It's kind, of, it's kind of weird because I obviously I knew Dead Calm from from the film and I I think I read I think I actually read Aground first before I read Dead, Dead Calm and then realized while reading Dead Calm, oh, this is a sequel to Aground. This is the same characters. And it's it's slightly weird in in that, you know, you think if a writer, like a, a crime writer, is going to do a serial or a kind of series, that you'd have these characters who would be, you know, in a job or in a kind of position to be kind of serial characters. You know, you you know, obviously I know you guys are big fans of Parker. You know, Parker, you've got a, a character who's always going on a new job. You know, that yeah. each is a heist or a job or the aftermath of a heist. You know, you've got that set up. If you have, you know, like Travis McGee, you know, you have like a, a PI, you know, or Lou Archer, you have a PI. But with a ground, you've got these two characters who, you know, aren't are just sort of normal people, really. <laughs> they're not, you know, they're not in a profession that, that that would lend themselves to you don't to... think of all the amazing adventures they can get into as a charter boat captain. <laughs> no, that's, that's it. I mean, maybe, yeah. It's it's kind of, you know, uh, you could see it. Maybe, oh, maybe he's thinking, oh, well, they they could, you know, they become a detective duo or something. But they don't. Yeah, you know, they're just an ordinary couple. When we meet them at the beginning of, beginning of Dead Calm, they they are just literally kind of sailing the ocean, doing nothing. You know, on a honeymoon. You know, it's it's you know they're not looking for for trouble. So it's interesting to me. I don't know why he chose to make this a sequel there's no what's interesting i mean maybe we can talk about that later on about why why he thought these characters were worth going back to because that that's an interesting kind of thing about what happens in both the novels definitely because their only real speciality seems to be getting into trouble out at sea right in in the vast (laughs) expanse of the ocean coming upon the absolute worst possible place to be (laughs) it seems to be what they're good at um have you read I mean, any of his other that, sorry oh, i think there is, there is an argument i think that that dead calm is is to a ground what evil dead 2 is to evil dead you know that, that it's basically trying to do the same thing again but better you know that because there is a similar kind of setup you know with with the two of them versus somebody you know stranded you know i mean there's even you know, rereading a ground there's they even talk about the dead calm of the ocean in in, in that book there's you know there, there's similar kind of things in there that they've got to get through so so i wonder whether that was it you know that he looked at a ground and thought yeah i could do that again but better yeah and maybe that was the reason i had the same impression absolutely even 
the phrases aground and dead calm come up a million times in each book and they clearly you know are you know uh, well there's also a big cultural literary genre shift happening underneath his feet and you can feel the difference between the two books when we get into it i think that's one of the more interesting things in comparing them and talking about him as an author and what happened to him as a person and how his career went i think that the it's sort of more than i can do it better than that it, not even more than it also feels like there's an amount of i used to do x thing and audiences fucking loved x thing now audiences want y thing let me try to do y thing and i'll use the same story and setup to compare those two things yeah well said. yeah absolutely. absolutely so before we get deep into these books uh with these uh, episodes we always do an aperitif and a dessert pairing something that we would recommend to the listener to engage with before and after uh enjoying these and i kind of thought we would start with the aperitif uh Maybe it would be one to read with a ground or dead, dead calm, however you want to do it. But Chris, do you want to start us off with your aperitif pairing? Yes, I picked um, Captain's Courageous, not the movie, but the Rudyard Kipling book it's based on. Uh, the movie is famously with Spencer Tracy playing a uh, a curly haired Portuguese simple man. Perfect casting for that. I really like Captain's Courageous, the movie. But it's this really sort of sentimental Hollywood, a bit silly version of the book. And the book is, if you haven't read the book, the book is Cabin Boy. It's about a fancy lad who gets lost at sea and taken in by a group of swarthy sea dogs who need him to prove his worth and make him into a man, right? Captain's Courageous is nothing but like straight, like, this is how you keep a ship afloat. This is how you survive on in the ocean. This is what it means to be a man and not a fancy lad. And if you want to read stories of rigging, then I think that the only thing that rivals a ground and dead calm is Captain's Courageous that I've read. And it's a really good book. I actually, I actually love the book, but it's a very specific niche thing. And I've got to say, I'm really into reading descriptions of rigging and how to you know clear the bilge pumps and you know keep the ship aft and that kind of thing and you must have been riveted reading these then. <laughs> oh i fucking i fucking loved it i fucking loved it um i'm not a particularly good sailor but i love that kind of stuff and i love that kind of i really Dead Calm even more so than Aground because they are out on the ocean and Dead Calm is like Captain's Courageous where it really makes you think about it's crazy that people go out on the ocean because it is 1000% hostile to us and there's nobody there to help you. There's nobody there to save you. There's nobody there to tell you what to do. You just got to go out there and live on it and you got to master the elements and you got to know the environment and you got to be tough as nails and your reward is that it's beautiful and exhilarating and like nothing else you've ever experienced to be out in the deep ocean. And for me, Captain's Courageous, the the book really, it captures the same attitude. It is, um, especially in Deep Calm where he's trying to deal with it, about what it means to be masculine and a man, about what it means to be a self-sufficient person who has an expertise and has concrete work. 
And um, and I think, you know, especially it's especially striking, you know, leading out of that era where even more so in New York City, where you get around a lot of men who don't know how to change a tire. You know what I mean? And certainly don't don't know things like that. You know, they might they might be experienced hikers, but that's like the most you get in campers. But that don't know the mechanical thing, you know, when their gas stove breaks down, they don't know what to do about it on their own. They they panic and call Con Edison, you know, and I think that it is it's just a strikingly different and something that I definitely romanticize, you know, uh, in I think because of my my dad and my my grandfather and my great grandfather who were very self-sufficient outdoorsy types Uh that that I like being around these kind of characters. I like the lessons that you learn from them. I like these kind of people, you know, and I like this kind of life. So uh, it reminded me uh, of that. Is that is that too much? Am I saying too much? No, that, that sums it up really well. I think that's a big theme of these books. Obviously, is being an expert is going to save your life. You know, if you're when you're out in the beautiful but dangerous ocean, that's dangerous because of the implication. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, just know, just knowing what the fuck you're doing. Cause the basics of sailing and running a boat are very, very simple, but you have to know them inside and out, you know? And I think that that's, that's what it's about is that if you know the simple things here, you can survive in quite incredible circumstances. Yeah. Captain's Courageous too is a nice quick read. I almost picked Cabin Boy. I was this close, honestly, <laughs> to pairing it with these books. So that's perfect. Yeah, and Ca Captain's Crash super duper thin. They, yeah. It's for kids. It's a kids book. I should mention. It's like boys a young, adventure. Yeah, boys adventure book. One of the classic boys adventure books. Stephen, what would you recommend uh, people engage with before these books? Well, it's it's something you mentioned already, John, which is the Dennis Hopper's nineteen ninety um, film adaptation of Hell Hath No Fury, uh, one of Charles Williams' earlier gold medal novels as the hotspot, um, which, I mean, is quite close to the book in terms of plot, um, has very much this, a, a thing that is, that is, that you find in Williams's work, which is this kind of hot Southern town, small town. And there's, you know, um, a guy turns up there and gets embroiled in, in, in some kind of crime. Um, I think that the film's, often kind of criticized for the pacing because it's quite kind of languorous pacing. I know that they filmed it in Texas in hundred degree heat, 110 degree heat. So it's kind of, it's, it's one of the sweatiest films you'll see. Um, and the, you know, the, the book obviously is uh, runs at a kind of quicker kind of pace because you're, you're inside the main character's head, which you can't do in, in the movie. Of course, you're just looking at, you know, Don Johnson sweating and looking, he does a lot of looking at, you know, Virginia Madsen and Jennifer Connelly um and and the bank uh which he's playing to heist um i think why it's why it's interesting as a kind of setup for for reading these books is because it is an earlier version of of charles williams and it is him doing this kind of more classic noir story of a guy who unwittingly walks into a trap and doesn't realize until it's too late and that trap is partially of his own making but largely of his own making really yeah he makes wrong decisions uh it's about a, a a dumb guy who thinks he's smart you know there's there's a there's a fantastic um 
moment in the story where you know he he basically um carries out this this heist of this bank you know which he he thinks he's been really really clever about and immediately the police drag him in and say you robbed the bank didn't you you know (laughs) (laughs) you were there the week before sort of you know and and walked into the bank and jimmy you're a stranger into and it's he thinks he's been so smart and we up to a point think that he's been smart because he's, you know, he's done all these things. And then you realize, no, he's just been really dumb. He's just, he thinks he can get away with this. So um, yeah, it's, it's a good setup. I think for, for reading more of Williams, Williams's work, it, it's got, it's that other kind of one of the other um, classic kind of setups for one of his novels. Yeah. One, one thing I've got to say, you referred to it as a Southern town. It is in mm-hmm. Texas. And mm. Charles Williams is Texan. His characters yeah. are Texan. And Texas, I know you're an Englishman, is so <laughs> different from the South. It's such a different thing. And it's actually, sure. he would be furious to hear Texas referred to as the South. He's <laughs> that kind of Texan. And I and I do think it is a it is a funny, it is a funny thing. And this is not a real criticism I'm having of you, obviously, but I do think it's it is one of the distinctions I think about with this too because his books are notoriously super popular in Europe, especially France, and he has no reputation in America. He has as forgotten as an author gets, especially a best-selling author. His first uh, book, Hill Girl, sold somewhere between a million and two million copies. Massive, massive hit. It is gone. You will never, you can live a hundred years and never hear anyone say the world's hill girl unless you go looking for them right he's kind of forgotten in that way and i am curious in england does he have the same european reputation or is it closer to america is he still like an a literary figure on the level of cornell woolrich or 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 something like that or is he more forgotten um no i think he's more he's more forgotten i mean i i hadn't heard of him before i i read that first book and it was only afterwards um and kind of posting about him and realizing that you know people really rated him as one of the top gold yeah. medal writers but he he is nowhere near on the level of you know cornell Woolrich or jim thompson or someone like yeah. that in terms of popular you know um recognition of those kind of writers which again yeah is is strange considering there have been multiple adaptations of his work that have been successful or renowned or you know that people know yeah. about it quite weird that he hasn't and and i don't i don't know why why that is because he's a, he's a terrific writer he's you know he's he's you know and there are a lot of there are a lot of those books out there so yeah it's 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 weird and one more just the last thing i'll mention about uh about about texas is that all of the great crime writers are from texas charles k williams jim thompson patricia highsmith there's something very Texan about being a crime writer that I think like that, like solidified in my mind in this. Like, it makes a lot of sense. The Coen brothers were like, we got to go to Texas for Blood Simple if we're going to make that kind of movie, you know? Yeah, Hotspot, though, is a great pick. It's an interesting movie. You maybe realize that like Dead Calm, my, my personal experience with those movies is like, I saw them because a famous movie star gets naked in them. You know, like they had famous like, Fast forward to the nude scene and watch those scenes. But, you know, like after that, when I actually watched the movie, like started from beginning to end and watched it, it was like, oh, this is actually a really good movie on top of, you know, just being something I'd like to see for for naked boobs. Um, But it's worth mentioning because one thing I want to get into with Williams, especially in relation to someone like his contemporary, like Thompson, 
is that there's like a weird wholesomeness to the books that I find really interesting uh, that he has kind of like a not distractingly moral viewpoint on things, but like it's, it's so much less seedy than the adaptations are in that kind of early nineties theater where they had uh, got interested in adapting crime novels. Again, they call it neo-noir kind of hate that phrase, but you know, when they were doing all the new Thompson adaptations, like after dark, my sweet and the grifters and the original films like red rock West and, the Last Seduction, that's where the hotspot kind of came into that sort of area, but um, much more sensualized. Yeah. And in that kind of uh, vein, my, my personal ap- aperitif to go with specifically a ground is um, the Tall T, the uh, oh. Boddicker Western, uh, one of the renowned series with Randolph Scott based on the short story, The Captives by Elmore Leonard. And like a ground, it's a um, you know story of a very self-sufficient, very competent, uh, almost warrior-esque kind of guy played by Randolph Scott, who gets into a, who falls in love in a hostage situation, very similar to what happens in a ground, falls in love with this woman he's trying to protect, played by Maureen O'Sullivan, but mainly that it has this very, very palpable sexual tension uh, with the main villain, Richard Boone. The two of them are, you know, kind of flip versions of the same coin, and Richard Boone kind of spends the whole movie sort of leering over randolph scott and admiring him and telling him like hey we should you know we should be admiring on him he is he's admiring on him the entire movie um but in a very kind of like old hollywood wholesomeness so you know very very subtexty but very palpable at the same time uh sort of uh the impression i got reading a ground too where it's like these these guys you know kind of admire uh our guy ingram you know they uh they, they clearly like think he's interesting and 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 there's like a weird tension between them that's kind of like hidden underneath sort of the more kind of wholesomeness of the book that I kind of thought was very Talty-esque personally. So in a sort of Western setting, this book would have come, uh, this movie would have come out about three years before Ground. So who knows if there's any kind of correlation, but I found the, the, the plot and settings and the tone very, very similar in like a very satisfying kind of way. Yeah, that's a great parent. Yeah, it's very big. So a ground uh, and and dead calm come out within three years of each other. A ground comes out in 1960, and uh, de- uh, dead calm comes out in 63. And do you know anything, Stephen, about the short story that that uh, that, that that Williams wrote? I found it on Wikipedia, but I didn't find anything else about it. Uh, they say that dead calm is sort of like a expansion of. Let me try to find the title here. Uh, Pacific Honeymoon is a novella that he had written earlier. Do you know anything about that at all? I don't. I'm afraid. No, no, I haven't read it. Yeah, I couldn't find anything about it either. So we should also mention it's really hard to find information on him because there's several Charles Williamses that are much more notable (laughs) than him. So if you're looking on the Internet, it's just like impossible to, to suss out anything. And he's just not written about. Sorry to interrupt, John. No, no. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It is hard to find stuff about him. It's kind of interesting. Again, because he, someone you've definitely heard his name, you know, kicked around, but he's just not someone, for whatever reason, who has like that kind of reputation. So uh, Wikipedia claims that Deadcom is based on an earlier novella, Pacific Honeymoon, which would be interesting because then not only would a ground be, you know, kind of a framework book that he then kind of did a different version of, there'd be a whole novella that he had written earlier that is somehow related to it. So I guess, I guess we'll never know. But a ground, uh, just to kind of start things off, the two characters that we've been kind of uh, talking about, 
who get involved with these two books. Uh, the first one is World War II Navy veteran named John Ingram, who is currently working in, when we meet him in the ground, as a boat broker, inspecting boats, assessing their value for people, kind of being hired independently. Uh, and he's coming off of a uh, tragedy when he was running a port harbor in Puerto Rico, when uh, his business literally was destroyed in a fire. His boats, you know, there was an explosion, a tragedy aboard his boat, the Nickels and Dimes. And, uh, and Barney died, old Barney, his business partner passed away. I, I read these books in reverse order. I don't like to know anything about a book before I read it, if I can avoid it. And so I read Dead Calm first, right? Not knowing it was a sequel to A Ground. I was, John was like, well, he reckoned, Stephen recommended for this. I was like, don't tell me. Let me just read the books. And he was like, well, you should relay. I was like, no, no, no. I know what I'm doing. And they tell the story of A Ground and Dead Calm in like a thumbnail, right? So then when I was reading A Ground, I was like, wait, is this a sequel? Is the story of Barney and some other fucking book before this one that I'm going to need to go back and read now? Was my reaction to the story of Barney and the blowing up ship. <laughs> we don't need Barney. It's crazy. It's funny because I read them in the correct order, but I've seen the movie Dead Calm. So as I was getting into A Ground, I was like, so are we going to learn about uh, Hughie? Is this going to be like <laughs> Hughie's story or uh, what, what, what's the what's the people here? I never would have guessed it was about the two, the couple from dead calm uh and at first they're not a couple because they meet in this book uh the female of the couple is ray snafu osborne who is uh throwing the dungarees in the chowda that's <laughs> my favorite phrase he comes up with she's as brazen as a chinese gong right she's kind of set up as this classic femme fatale who is like a moneyed widow who owns this boat that gets uh that that john is uh hired to go and, and check out and see assess and see if they want to buy it but it's all a big con and he's the boat gets stolen and John gets blamed and framed. And it's not until Ray Osborne comes to him and says, all right, I want you to help me go find, I, I believe you. I don't think you're a part of this plot, but I want you to come out and go find the boat with me, get on a plane and go out and find the boat that we get into the plot. This one takes a little bit longer to get going than dead calm, which kind of like gets right into it, you know, kind of like they're there in the boat and the, things start happening immediately, but there's a lot of kind of build up and backstory to a ground. Um, what did you guys think of, uh, Stephen, what do you think specifically of a ground and uh, kind of the, the the labor kind of backstory it takes to get to? Did you find it like you know kind of hard getting into it, or did you enjoy I, the 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 cops I, roughing around Ingram for a I, while? I kind of enjoyed it because I think again coming off the back of other Williams books where you have these kind of femme fatales and you have these dumb guys who think they're smart getting into getting in too deep. You know, you wonder where this is heading. You know, you don't know what the deal is with Ray. You know, there, there's definitely a kind of, you know, he doesn't like her. She doesn't like him. You know, he thinks that she's, uh, you know, a, a, a snob. And, you know, she thinks that he's just, you know, uh, potentially a criminal, potentially, you know, just uh, out for himself. Um, and I think that, Obviously, for for Williams, he needed that kind of set up that time with the two of them for the payoff later on that that you get, you know, because you you get a twist kind of you know halfway through about you know what what Ray is up to um, because when you know they they eventually uh, via seaplane find this 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 boat that's been stolen from her um, beached on this on this kind of sandbank and the two of them go down to have a look at it and it turns out there are a couple of guys on board who are criminals who are gun runners who basically kidnap them tell them to send the plane away and say you're going to help us get this 
get this boat back on back on the ocean and deliver these guns to South America with us, which they have to do, which again is a kind of, you know, if you've read Dead Calm, you know, the, the idea of getting onto a boat that you think is empty and finding there are people on it, you know, it's, it's the same kind of setup, but you know, in this, he does something different with it. Um, yeah, John Ingram really needs to learn to not assume a boat is empty just because no one's on the deck. We've like, <laughs> yeah, both of these exactly. boats. He you looked, think... he looked at the dude to see if there were footprints on this one and in, in all fairness <laughs> in a ground, he's a little more savvy with it. Than in, you than you in think Dead after Calm. having been through a ground that by the time of, I mean, to be fair to him, by the time of Dead Calm, he does have a kind of instinct that something's up. He just doesn't kind of like fully kind of, uh, you know, give into it. Um, but yeah, once they 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 get, you know, they meet these two guys, these two um, criminals, uh, Al Morrison and Carlos Ruiz. Um, Ray kind of starts playing along with them. She starts playing this kind of like, you know rich lady on an adventure kind of thing, flirting with them, get, you know, getting them drinks while, while they treat Ingram as just like, okay, you're going to now take all of these crates of guns and take them over to this, you know, it sounds like backbreaking work on a, on a kind of, you know, on a rowboat over to this other sandbank. Everything he describes in either book sounds backbreaking and too difficult yeah. for me. <laughs> Literally anything. It's like trying to get a radio to work. I'm like, I'm out. This is too hard. <laughs> but but you know so so at the end of the first day he basically they say what we're going to do with these with these guys so, okay well you know put ingram over on this sandbank he can just sleep there you know that way we don't have to worry about him getting away because he he's where's he going to go so he goes and sleeps on the sandbank and then he can hear this kind of partying going on on on, on the boat and he's just thinking oh god this woman she's just you know she's what's she doing you know she's going to end up you know being um assaulted by these guys she doesn't you know she doesn't know what she's playing with eventually after a couple of hours she gets shipped over to the sandbank that he's on and once the Carlos Ruiz goes back to, to the boat he realizes she's not drunk at all she's been playing along with it she's been thinking all the way how do we get out of this situation and for the first time he realizes oh she's like me because this is one of the things about I think that especially comes to the fore in Dead Calm is that both of these characters think about the situations they're in. They're thinking about how do I get out of this? You know, they're very practically minded. Um, they don't, you know, especially in, in Dead Calm, you know, he doesn't let his imagination, he won't let his imagination run riot in terms of what's the worst that could happen. He thinks about in this immediate situation, how do I get out of this? And she does the same. And so you start kind of seeing that they have this kind of um, sympathy with with one another because they see that there's something in the other that that is similar, you know. And it is this idea that they they will find a way out of this situation. Very true. It's all, it was interesting to me reading them in reverse order. It's a little bit like knowing the magician's trick in advance going in, and I was impressed by how little he cheats, right? Like he never um, mischaracterizes who Ray or Ingram are in order to set up that femme fatale-ish problem to, to, to play his trick on the audience. He doesn't cheat at all, which is very impressive. He, he keeps to the characterization. He doesn't leave details out in a pointed way. He doesn't have either of them acting falsely to themselves. He doesn't overdo it with the language. And I was actually 
very impressed by it in that way, knowing where it's going, that they're going to end up together honeymooning uh, and in love. It it's it really is impressive how little he cheats with it, how how straight ahead and sort of forthright and honest the writing is, even as he's setting it up. I don't know what my reaction would have been um, reading it if I didn't know that this is how they end up together. But it's fascinating because it still works perfectly fine as characterization and drama as two people meeting each other and getting to know each other. The characterization works. That's what I mean, I think, by no cheats is that it doesn't you don't need the trick to be played on you for those sections of the book to still be equally effective and true. I was going to ask you about that because reading a ground first obviously the classic setup would be like she's somehow in on this like they, they she, like every other character she's playing ingram the whole time um like you're trying to like figure out the angle of like when is it going to be revealed that like haha you moved all of our ammunition for us over to this island and now now we're going to kill you and i'm with these guys and and the way it kind of comes out obviously is that he is just his mistrust of her and and thought that she's like not appreciating the situation and not worried about or worried about her own survival and not and not caring about him and then finding out of course that like she's she's on his side the whole time she's just playing it her own way that early scene where she comes to his hotel where she comes over to his hotel room and she's she's acting drunk and floozy and he goes realizing, to her hotel room right and right. she's just uh realizing like oh she's you know this this is just a manipulative you know dame who's just trying to like knock me around uh, and then, you know, kind of seeing her do that same thing to the villains and feeling, you know, kind of miffed by that. All that is really interesting. And I think especially if, you know, Ray ultimately will be, you know, shown to be a good person that the big re revelation at the end of a ground is that he, you know, sees behind all that and says, oh, you're actually a beautiful person I could fall in love with <laughs> and not someone who's just like, you know, using the situation and manipulating everybody. So I think that whether or not he's cheating, I think that's a really interesting take on that kind of a character. And yeah, it reminds me of Talty a little bit. Yeah, I, I I think there's the other aspect of it um, is that you know you mentioned it already with with Ingram that he comes you know he he's got a limp when we first meet him because he was in this fire that killed his partner that burnt down his business. Um, I think we also find out that he's he's a widower. Yeah, we find out that that Ray is a widow that she had a child who died of polio a few years ago. They're both the people are kind of yeah they're both older he's in his 40s i think she's in her 30s they're both these people who were laden down with this trauma that that still kind of affects them um and there's a wonderful sequence at the end of a ground where you know they they eventually get back onto the back onto the boat and they leave um manage, manage to strand al morrison on the sandbank they get back on the boat and then you have this kind of standoff where they're trying to get the boat to float but he's trapped on an, a, a sandbank with multiple crates of weapons and guns, <laughs> including guns with scope sights so that he can basically snipe at them the whole time they're trying to get this 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 boat off the sandbank which is a, a fantastic setup but my favorite my favorite sequence of the book i think mm -hmm. i just I, I love morrison i think he's a great character for some yeah. reason i just thought like this is a tom sizemore character like totally <laughs> like, that's who i can see playing this guy um but like you know described as this big burly kind of indomitable physically kind of guy, you know, this just very physically intimidating guy. And then, yeah, when they take away his agency, they they drop him on the island and he's stuck over there. Uh, 
his dialogue becomes these these bullet shots on the hull, right? That they're hearing the whole time, you know, where it's like he's going to constantly let them know whether he's actually aiming for them or he's trying to injure the boat in some way to stop them from getting it uh, off of the uh, reef. That he is like there, and he is unquestionably like a da- a danger, even when he's far away. I that think that is really effective. But there's also that this bit where where Ingram goes down um, uh, into the bowels of the boat and finds out that it's filled with fuel because Morrison has hit a fuel tank and and he suddenly has this panic of of just the smell of it of like you know this is what happened to my partner he was burnt alive all it would take would want would be for one spark and I would be up in flames and yeah you. Know, you for the first time, I think in in the book, you feel his kind of panic because up to that point he's been pretty kind of controlled, and there is this rising panic in him of like, you know, revisiting this this fairly recent kind of trauma, and he manages to kind of subdue it, and he manages to kind of get through it, and it's it's kind of what sets up the the, the end confrontation with Morrison. That but was again, the only thing I wondered about in real in terms of real life is like the stoichiometry of that. If that would actually. Because gasoline's actually really hard to set on fire. I guess with the fumes would be enough. But if you have a puddle of gasoline, you can shoot bullets at it all day and nothing will happen. It really yeah. is the like fumes that'll cause something to blow up. But that was the yeah. one section where I was like, is this true? Is the boat actually... I feel like boats are designed specifically so that fume leaks will not blow up. And that's And I think reading Dead Calm 2 first was like oh it's really hard to sink boats actually like boats don't actually sink in 10 minutes like in the movies you can shoot them up all they're designed not to sink yeah. yeah and they and they are very thoughtfully put together in that way and there's lots of things to do when they do start taking on water or do get damaged or break in some way that they actually are designed to like fucking survive and i was like is the actual like gas to to uh to ignition source ratio correct and oxygen because you have to have all that to blow it up because it seems like boats like never blow up (laughs) you know like it's very very rare that's everything in this book is so detailed though that i can't imagine he would get that wrong you know he's gotta be right i mean these almost need like a glossary of nautical terms you know mainsails and halyards the guy the The bosun yeah yeah the spinnaker the Azimuth ring, one in particular that threw me was the the deviation card for the compass. I'm like, what is that? I don't even. <laughs> I have no idea. A beam to the swell. I'm I'm, I'm totally at sea here. I don't know these terms. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, he was a boat a guy lot. for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was his background. He had been a merchant marine. We should mention, and then had worked in a navy yard doing uh, electronics inspections of some kind. But he was very much, very, very much a boat guy. He was really, this was not stuff he researched uh, to write the novel. This was like the life he lived. Oh, yeah, you can tell. These books feel very close to him in some way when I read them. They feel like these are his interests sort of nakedly put on the page. And, you know, how how to properly adjust the compass based on the weight of the boat, you know, and things like that. Well, there's yeah, a whole no, section, totally. isn't there, about the, about the compass, which is how he figures out that one that the guy they thought had been on the boat wasn't on the boat because the guy who should have been on the boat knew how to sail and the guy who had been on the boat actually didn't know because they should have adjusted the compass knowing there was that much iron on the boat because of the guns and that yeah. that would affect the compass. And, you know, so that 
it's all the stuff that I don't fully understand, but I know <laughs> Ingram does understand, and Ingram is very kind of like clear about, yeah, he knows his shit, and that, and again, that's another thing that's, yeah, you know, as we've said before, is very entertaining to read about is that people who absolutely know what they're doing. Yeah. So and Ingram, once he gets onto the, the this kind of um, this boat on the sandbank, he knows how to get it back afloat. He knows what you have to do, that it is possible. You know, these are things we have to do. And, you know, even with this sniper on this side doing this, this you know, there, there's a lot of thinking and planning. And that's what I love to kind of read about. And again, it's, you know, going back to someone like Parker, one of the great joys of the, the Parker novels is reading, planning a heist, figuring out how all these things fit together. And with Ingram, in both the books, you've got him figuring out on the fly, how do I get through the next hour? How do I get to this next little staging point that keeps me alive long enough to have still have the potential of being saved, which is a big thing about about dead calm, which we'll, we'll which we'll get onto. Um, but it's great it's great to read about somebody who just you know is not showy about it, but knows what they're doing. Yeah, I also imagine if you're a boat guy, that stuff that are like uh, the bilge gets uh, suction gets uh, gets jammed up because somebody stored cans with their labels in the bilge. So they've come off. I imagine if you're a boat guy, you're like, ah, that's exactly why you don't do that with the cans. I imagine yeah. there's a lot of little stuff like that. That's very, very satisfying. Like, oh, <laughs> exactly. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> But he doesn't leave the non-boat readers behind either. Like you really zero percent. Yeah, you definitely like learn through Ingram. The one phrase I couldn't, I even like Googled, I could not figure it out. Sailing through the grapefruit rinds. <laughs> I have no idea what grapefruit rinds means in sailing, and I could <laughs> no amount of research helped me out on that. So that was the one he lo he lost me on. But other than that, I maybe that's just a, bit, just a bit of poetic writing, though, isn't it? Does that just mean like the white bits of surf? Yeah, could it just mean that? You think that it's not? Yeah, I think it's not the sailing term. It's just poetic license, maybe. I, you're probably there right. is definitely a fine line between. Is that a poetic term or is that a, a nautical term in this book for sure? Um, <laughs> he he just throws it off so you know casually. It's like I should know what it is, and I feel bad that I don't. <laughs> um, one thing that I thought was funny about about this book, and it, we should mention, it's a very like direct, fast paced read. I accidentally read it one morning. I didn't mean to read it all in one morning and read it that quickly. Um, is is also um, when they describe the plot in Dead Calm of what's happened. And I was reading Dead Calm first and it's like, uh, his her boat got stolen and we found it aground on a sandbar. And it's like, oh, okay, I well, now I'm reading that story. I wonder what else happens. And no, nothing else happens. There's so little to this story. It's all about the practical. Her boat got stolen. It's on a sandbar. The guys who stole it are there. How do we get away? That is it. There mm. is not too much preamble on land. There is very, very, very little to the story. There's not all of these twists and turns and a, and a boat race and all that. One of the things it is like a Parker book is that it's got a very direct practicality to it, even in terms of the storytelling. As this... I can see why his movies get adapted into books. And these are the only two I've read by him. If the other, um, if they're like this, you don't have to cut anything to get it into movie shape and movie size, right? Like normally when you take a book, you know, a, an average size novel, 
you can take about a fourth of it and turn it into a feature length screenplay. That's that's the ratio that they tell you. If it's 300 pages, you can take about a quarter of that to turn it into screenplay. You read this and it's like, and dead calm, this, there's nothing you have to cut. You can make this very directly, you know, because so much of it's action and you can compress or expand the action at moments when you need it. But there's like not a lot of story and not a lot of plot to get in the way, not a lot of plot to get in the way of the story, as Joe Bob says, you know? So it's uh, it's impressive, especially this one, how lean it is. It is Absolutely. funny to read these books one after another, though, and have them describe the plot of a ground in dead calm for like five or six pages and be like, <laughs> oh, Charles Williams, this is just filler. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wonder why, I I wondered why he felt the need to do that, because it, 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 I think Again, it's for readers like me. If you're just picking yeah. up the book and you want to know what the backstory is, I think that that's probably it. Sorry to interrupt, but well, I just I just wondered whether you really, you know, how much backstory you really need for for John and Ray in Dead Calm because you you know that again they're not apart from the again apart from the shared trauma in their background, which I think is important to to the characters and to the story. I think that you really need to know that they got together during another crime caper unless <laughs> Williams is, is trying to sell old copies of a ground. Well, that was the moment when I read it and I was like, oh, this is part of a series. And I called John and I was like, John, is this part of a series? And he was like, yes, I was trying to tell you. <laughs> I was like, oh, it is the moment where you have, and in a lot of these books, that series books that you, you know, if we haven't mentioned them yet, but if you're reading a John D. McDonald book and you pick them up, you know, you you can read any one of them. You're not necessarily, especially in that era when there's no Wikipedia or librarians to tell you which is the first one, what order should I read this in? You just grab one and you read it and see if you like it. And there will be those sections explaining, okay, this is who this guy is. This is the the setup for this. I think I think that's all, all it is. It does. It's just funny it to think about like diehard. It yeah. gives it a weird flavor of like, oh, this is like way more than I thought their backstory would be. That's what gives <laughs> the hand to being a sequel. It's like, oh, there's clearly another book he's trying to summarize for me here. Well, it'd be like if you watch Die Hard 2 and there's like this five-minute scene where John McClane just sits down with a cigarette and is like, let me tell you about Nakatomi Tower. That's another <laughs> terror situation. Very similar to the one we're in right now that I, I happen to be involved with. But but if it was a book, I guarantee you that scene would be in it. 100%. <laughs> no question. I mean, you can't not mention that these guys have been in a similarly dangerous experience before. <laughs> I think I actually have the book that Die Hard 2 was based on, so I will go and check. Oh, 58 oh, minutes? Nice. <laughs> um, um, shall yeah. we move on to Dead Calm? Shall we jump into the next one? Have we discussed a ground or not? The only the other thing I have to say about about uh, a ground and it applies to dead calm as well is this like plays into like three uh, like secondary experience like fears that I have which is the the first like the blowing up and the and the gasoline when I was a kid in I was like fifth or sixth grade my friend Craig Dawes his mom blew herself up she was filling up her lawnmower in their garage and spilled the gasoline and when the hot water heater clicked on it blew up and blew up their house and stuff she survived but was like burned and broken arm and stuff and their house burned down so when i first met him he was living in a motel because as their house was being fixed so when it got to that and it's like the refrigerator 
kicking on. I was like, oh my God, that's like Craig's mom getting blown up. And then um, I'm a big scuba diver. I'm not a very good sailor, but I'm a big scuba diver. And one time I was out with my dad and we were on like a chartered tour, like vacationing someplace. I don't remember where we were. And those are always iffy because you don't really know the, the captains and stuff you're going out with. And we got off course underwater. We were supposed to be swimming around a reef. We couldn't find it. And we came up and we had swam in the wrong direction somehow. We were like a hundred yards from the boat. And you're immediately like, oh, I hope these fuckers do a good head count and aren't casual because like, we got to get back there and I hope we have enough time and all of that. And it's really terrifying to just be in the water, to just be in the water and realize like, there's there's no getting out of this like if that boat leaves even just being a hundred yards from a boat it's really like this is a huge disaster you know this this can end in our debts very 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 easily and so anytime he's in the water or the boats coming up are there someplace even when they're just landing the the uh, amphibious plane there's a lot of like that sense of being on the water uh, and not being exactly where you can. That's really foreboding. And then the um, uh, final thing I was thinking about, my grandfather, Fundy, uh, he was on a, a deep sea fishing trip and grounded his ship. He wasn't the captain, so he didn't ground it, but he grounded off the coast of Canada and they were trapped in like remote Canadian wilderness for eight days where they had nothing to do and nowhere to go. The boat was wrecked and they had to live out there. So that too was always something when I was a kid, I would have like nightmares about being trapped the Canadian wilderness covered with ticks. That's the main thing I remember. They came home and they both had like 45 ticks on them. The three of them, it's just horrifying amount uh, of ticks being out in the woods trying to survive. So like this book really like got me in my like childhood fears in some fundamental way. Well, it's nice how layered the books are because on top of, you know, having psychopaths to deal with just being aground and just being, stuck on the sinking ship are terrifying prospects just by themselves. Yeah. Right? That's the thing is I didn't even, I didn't have much of a response. Like the guy is never the threat. You know what I mean? The environment is the threat. You know, the, the hostile environment is the threat. And the problem of the guy is they're going to fuck up you dealing with the real threat. The psychopaths are not the real threat. The ocean and the sandbar are the real threat. Although that said, I just wanted, before we move on from move away from a ground, I already said I like Morrison so much. He's this character becomes so hyper fixated on doing this, getting this thing done, even though it becomes so impractical, you know, at this point, it's like, it's, he just wants to do it. Like he's just so focused on getting it done. And his partner Ruiz, who is like such a tragic figure who just has like this, I don't know, man, kind of attitude the whole time where he just wants out. He yeah. does not want to have to do this anymore. And he keeps getting, you know, pushed and pushed by Morrison to, you know, continue to be the villain and where he's like, I don't want to, I'm not the bad guy here. I just want to leave. I just want to not be involved in nefarious things anymore. Oh, poor Ruiz. I feel very bad for him. Yeah. Mark Morrison's a great character. He has that thing, doesn't he, where he calls everybody Herman who, who keeps <laughs> yeah. Herman. And who was that other guy? What did he, what was his name? Oh, Morrison just called him Herman. It's just, you know, he's just the... <laughs> and at that point, I think they hadn't named john ingram john yet i don't think we knew his first name so i was like is herman his first name i'm a little confused <laughs> um does he know him uh that's that's a, that is interesting and both novels have this same device where there's this ca character who is 
mentioned often and is you know kind of omnipresent even though they have been they've been killed off page kind of mysteriously and we kind of learn towards the end like what was their fate and like why was it important to the background of these characters so it's kind of interesting that they both have this lingering off-page character that we're always kind of thinking about even though we never actually meet them in the narrative but yeah so dead calm um Ray and uh, Ingram get together. They're honeymooning, as they said that they would do at the end of a ground. Uh, they're on the Pacific, headed for Tahiti from Panama. Uh, they come upon a becalmed schooner, and there's this guy, uh, Hughie Wariner, who is um, on on the dinghy, kind of coming off of it, saying, "Everyone has died of food poisoning, and and the boat is sinking." And he seems completely traumatized and 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 not not well at all. So they're going to help this guy out, even though Ingram kind of suspects something is strange about his story and wants to go over to the boat. And Hughie keeps saying, "No, no, no! You don't want to go over there. You know, it's it's, it's not a good scene. It's bad. Let, let's just get out of here." But he goes and investigates, and uh, it's funny because here's where it deviates hugely from the movie adaptation. The movie adaptation when the Sam Neill character goes over and finds. Uh, everyone's been killed by Hughie, right? Everyone has been yeah. murdered horribly by the psychopath. And so there's this instant like, oh my God, my wife's in danger. I have to go and stop her from being murdered. But here he's actually trapped the other two passengers, locked them in the cabin beneath uh, the boat so that they will you know, die obviously on the sinking boat, but they're alive and they become characters in the book uh, and end up helping Ingram or not helping Ingram as it turns out for one character. So that was definitely something that threw me, having only seen the movie, that these characters would be involved and that would be like a huge plot point would be that the uh, Hughie's wife and that this other guy, um, this douchebag sports writer, are left on the boat alive and kind of have to help Ingram uh, keep the boat afloat and hope that uh, Ray can take back control of their own boat and get it back there before they all drown. Yeah, absolutely, and and it's it's again there there are similar points plot points to to a ground as we've mentioned, you know, going onto a boat and finding that you thought it was it was abandoned and actually there's people on it, but in this the 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 key is instead of Ray and Ingram being forced together and forced to work together, they are forced apart almost immediately and have to work separately to get back to one another, and I think it's one of the things that's really interesting. I think Chris, you just touched on it really is that how dangerous this environment is and how thin the veneer is between absolute comfort which is where we find them initially they're going skinny dipping in the ocean and kind of lounging on the deck and everything is absolutely Their breakfast perfect. sounds so good i know the breakfast they share is like this is the best thing <laughs> and then immediately like that veneer is is taken away and it's absolute danger you know because once um Ingram goes onto the other boat, uh, the which is that there's is the the, Orpheus, they, the Orpheus. They go the on, the they go on the to the Orpheus. Orpheus. Yeah. yeah, and then Huey Warner takes off with Ray on their boat, the Saracen. Once that happens, you know, and Ingram realizes, shit, I I am stuck here. She's gone off with this guy who is kind of you know a, emotionally disturbed at best, you know, and you know that he's watching this boat just go <laughs> further and further away. And we realize very quickly through, through William's kind of description of, of Ingram's thought process processes, which is something I hadn't really thought about and something that, that I think films don't tend to do, which is that once she goes past a certain point, once she gets far enough away, she will not be able to find her way back to him. Like even if she's off by like a mile or so, 
she will not find that boat. You know, yeah. how difficult it is to find one boat, you know, from a certain distance away in the middle of a gigantic ocean. That is what is emphasized so much in, in the book is like the chances of her being able to get back to him are getting smaller and smaller by the minute. And it's going to take a miracle. Yeah. And that's what they've got to rely on a miracle. And it's um, interesting, the character of Huey, you know, again, knowing only the Philip Noyce movie and the Billy Zane kind of, you know, sleazy, charismatic psychopath. It's interesting to have this version of him from the book, which is more of like a boyishly handsome young guy that he's described as who has like mother issues and like sensitivity issues and is like terrified of being abandoned and, you know, terrified of the water just has like, uh, I can't remember the exact phrase he uses, but like uh, has a phobia of pretty much everything and just kind of has reacted like with this paranoid belief that after this traumatic thing that we're going to learn happened, uh, that they're, everyone's out to kill him and he needs to get away from these two people. Um, I, I, I couldn't help think like Williams must have based this on like Anthony Perkins from Psycho, which would have come out like three years before this book. That's all I could think about. All the dialogue really fit like an Anthony Perkins kind of, you know, well, yeah. you know what and... you know what it reminded me a lot of was like one of Patricia Highsmith's characters viewed from the outside, like one of her like sissy weirdos seen by a man like John Ingram, how they would be received. And I think that you know, Psycho being a natural extension of of Highsmithian territory, you know, sure. going from strangers on a train. Uh, to that for Hitchcock and where the thriller genre is going. I think you're exactly right to identify it as he's a character that does not feel like a natural character for someone like Charles K. Williams to write. And what I think is is happening in this book is that you have, I'm sorry to interrupt, you finish your, what you were talking about. I, um, uh, I'm getting waved off. I'm getting waved off. I'm staying in. Um, is that you have in the 50s, the early 50s, when he has his first hit, Hill Girl in 1951, the kind of like two-fisted, hard-boiled, straight-ahead, Dashiell Hammett-type crime novel could still really play with people. But the change that happens in the 50s with the psychological crime novel coming to the forefront, right? Uh, the change happens a little earlier than that or is identified. You know, you have Raymond Chandler in The Simple Art of Murder, talking about psychological fiction. And I think, you know, with Mr. Bowling buys a newspaper is 1943. And that's a book that Chandler and Highsmith were both like, this is the way forward for crime fiction, right? This is going to be the psychological crime novel. That's about the interiority of criminals and the depraved and things like that. And that's where these books are headed that by the early sixties, when he makes a ground, it must feel like from a different universe from where you know mr uh talented mr ripley's 55 charles wilford and jim thompson are both writing books by by the early mid 50s early 60s that are their their more psychological novels are are starting to come out then jim thompson's early work is not particularly psychological in the way that we associate with his his later work i think by the time you get to a hell of a woman and and um, the same books from that that little era after Dark My Sweet is around the same time in the mid 50s. I think that the ground is completely shifting below Charles K. Williams's feet. And it feels like this book more than a sequel, more than a do over feels to me like 
okay, a ground, I can't just write a book like that anymore. I've got to write a psychological crime novel. And that's why John Ingram keeps saying, almost like a John Ingram stand-in, I'm not a fucking therapist. What do I know about these lunatics? Over and over. And it has a lot of this dime store psychology and these constant mentions of therapy, right? That it feels like, well, I got to write a Highsmith character now. What's that? Or a Jim Thompson character. What the hell does that look like? And it's completely on the outside, unlike Thompson or Highsmith. He doesn't view them from the inside. He views it completely from the outside. And I really do feel like that character, especially being on on the boats, you know, just the association with Ripley and and, and Purple Noon, um, that that it does feel like a Highsmithian weirdo sissy and Anthony Perkins type being placed into a, a Charles K. Williams book. And I, uh, sorry, go on. No, I was going to say, what's really interesting, I think, is that I think you're completely right about that in terms of his character. But what's really interesting to me, rereading Dead Calm again, is Ray and John's reaction to him and how they treat him with a lot more sympathy. Like you said, yeah. the villain in the villain in this story is not, even though he's doing bad things, he's like, you know, he knocks Ray out and he kind of steals the boat. He doesn't care about leaving John behind. He's never fully painted as a villain. The villain is the situation they are in. The villain is the environment that and, they are stuck yeah. in. And the bad guy is the the men's magazine writer. Yeah, yeah, the true yeah. bad guy is like the John Ingram on steroids blowhard version of that. Like the traditional masculinity, deep sea fisher, big game hunter, blowhard yeah. asshole. He's the real villain, the guy they find alive. Sorry yeah, to absolutely. interrupt. No, no, absolutely. No, absolutely. That's, that's it. But you have these, you know, for both, you know, there, there are moments where both John and Ray separately, you know, Inter internally talk about Huey and and you know that they they you know that there's a point where obviously Ray is faced with this choice she's getting further and further away from the boat that that John is trapped on she's alone with Huey he will not listen to reason you know um you know the other thing is we understand his trauma as it goes on we understand what has traumatized him yeah you know, they're clear to outline that and to sympathize with that as well um, she has this moment where there is a shotgun on board that that is, you know, seeded earlier on. There's a shotgun. She goes to find it. She loads it. She puts it together. She, you know, she, he, you know, Huey is at the wheel. She points it at him and she has this kind of two or three page kind of like internal monologue about what kind of person will I be if I do this? How will that change me? I, I need to do this at a certain point or John is going to die. But if I do this, how will that change me? Yeah, it's not as easy as like, here's the bad guy, you shoot him, you go back, you find, you, you know, there is this massive discussion. And in the end, she, she, she puts the gun down. She can't do it. Or at least she says, this isn't the last point that I can choose to do this. There is a later point that I can choose to do this, but I'm not going to do it now. If there is something else that I can do, I will do it. You know, and I think it's really interesting yeah. to have that discussion, you know, in something that, you ostensibly think is going to be the kind of very is this kind of sort of noirish kind of thriller on on the sea, but you have this discussion about no, you don't just kill people, especially mentally ill people, yeah, just because it will save you. Yeah, yeah, and, and it and, harkens back to a ground where Morrison survives. They don't kill him, right? He's not the bad guy. He's been spending the entire novel trying to murder them, and you know they have the opportunity to get the upper hand of him and and take him out, and make it easy for themselves. 
he ends up tied up on the boat heading back into shore, you know, and that's sort of the kind of moralizing, kind of interesting moralizing that I think William's kind of exactly what you're talking about where he, you know, says when you're out here in the middle of the ocean where there are no rules, you know, basically, you know, it's survival is the rule. So, you know, if you, no one would blame you if you killed these people who are trying to kill you, like you're kind of making up your own, your own set of morals here. You know, but there's also the idea the that, that I guess that that you know, contrary to some other kind of crime novels that you might find, that killing killing someone may solve a problem, but it also traumatizes you. It changes. Yeah. You. Well, you we know, just we just talked about we did an episode on Unforgiven, and it's the same thing where where Morgan Freeman can't pull the trigger; she can't shoot him with the shotgun. Just mm-hmm. the idea that it's really actually hard to kill somebody is from a different moral universe than where the thriller genre was going. It just feels like from a different, he feels like he's from a completely different universe than what's going on in literature and culture. If you start to locate him in like, well, what's happening in America in 1963? It's like, oh Christ, you know, like this is, this is a completely different universe he's in now than when he started writing. Um, And I, and I, yeah, I agree with you 100%. Just the idea that like, good guys can kill people without effort without it impacting them is something he can't accept as a writer. He just can't. He's like, that's not. And I think it's in his head where he's like, I couldn't do that. You know, realistically, I think he's a very honest writer in a very um, plain spoken kind of way. I think he's just somebody who's, who's tells the truth about what he thinks about things. And that's, that's part of when he didn't have the cheats and the other one, like he's somebody who I think has a good sense of how to manipulate an audience, but he's not going to trick them. He's not going to pull one over on them. You know, he's going to create characters that guide you in a certain way, but he's not going to like fool you at the expense of, of, of just telling the truth about it, shooting you straight. You know, he's just yeah, well, in, in, in this environment yeah. where literally everything they have to do is to survive. You know, if you have to kill someone to survive, to them, it's unacceptable, I think is a really hard, you know, angle to take. And I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. I think it's a a very clear kind of moral sense that you that you get from from him. You know, that there are things. And again, like I say, I think this idea that both Ray and John have trauma, they recognize trauma in, in Huey and they know that certain things will cause you more trauma. Why would you call? Do you know what I mean? Why would you? do that if yeah. there is an alternative you know that that violence and i can imagine like some readers reading <laughs> reading dead calm back when it was released just getting into that sequence and going just shoot the fucking guy just shoot him you know definitely what- do that for the sense of like you're both going to die if you don't do this but i think the reality of it puts you in the character hmm. so much more it's it's you know you go like no i i i don't think i could shoot someone with a shotgun even if it was going to mean like we die on this boat. Like I just, it's a really hard thing to imagine doing if you actually think about it, you know? What's interesting is with the film that they, that this, this discussion doesn't really. Gone. Yeah. <laughs> at all. Absent. You know, it, it very much changes Ray's character in terms of what she's prepared to do. It much more sexualizes her, you know, um, and, and, you know, and, 
she is more cited as the, as the character with the trauma, even though they've lost a child, they lose a child in a horrific way at the beginning of the, the film. But it's it's her who is cited as being like the person who has the trauma and the guilt from that. Whereas Sam Neill's character was away and kind of comes yeah. back more like, oh, come on, you know, let's get over it. Kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> Rather than, you know, oh my God, this is a horrific thing that's happened to us both. Um, so, and that's really, and rewatching, I rewatched Dead Calm, um, anticipating this, this conversation. And, and it's re apart from losing those two characters on the, on, on the boat, you know, that's the, the major change is, is, is this relationship between Ray and Huey on, on the boat and what she's prepared to do. And, and, and the fact that he is just much more, obviously he's kind of got, you know, mental health problems. Obviously he's emotionally disturbed, but the idea is, yeah, you just kill him, you know, yeah. you got to kill well, that's well, the thing another, is it, sorry, can I, yeah, ooh, another thing that yeah. no, no, just another thing that like it kind of like benefits from having read a ground and like kind of learning about this Ray character is that we see like all these sort of devices that she's like able to use because of her experience, because of like how she knows people. And here she is just does not know what to do. This Huey, Huey character, she just does not have a weapon against him, you know, to use. And it's amazing to see this character who is so confident and like does, you know what she needs to do to survive in the ground be completely at a loss for like, how do I, how do I handle this? If I'm not going to shoot this guy in the back, you know, okay. what, what the hell, how the hell do I get out of this situation? It's interesting to see a character that you feel is a powerful and smart and interesting character be so completely lost in this situation. Yeah. Um, this, this I was just crazy guy say... just singing Charmaine as he's <laughs> killing the engine, just 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 going nowhere, just headed off into the into the water. Yeah, I was going to say the movie. I like the movie quite a bit. I think it's a very effective movie. Too. It's something I have a lot of affection for, but it flattens out the story and makes it into just a movie. It sort of yeah. does all of the things some some screenwriter and producer sat down and said, OK, how do we fix this? You know, and the way they fix it is making it more like other things, you know, making it more. This is the standard narrative solutions to everything are installed and the, the deadwood is cut away. And, you know, why are there? It's confusing who the bad guy is. There's just got to be one bad guy. Why don't they use violence to solve their problems? You know, all of those kind of things. And it's all cheats. It's all trying to maneuver the plot where it wants it to be. That's one of the things that um, ends up being very tense about a ground and dead calm is that because he doesn't cheat, you feel like that somebody could really die here. One of them could really die because that's a very logical thing to happen here. Something horrible could happen to somebody. If Ingram goes down with the ship at the end of dead calm, that wouldn't shock me. So there's real tension. Something in the movie, it feels like, well, you know, you know nobody's nothing's really at stake here because it's it's a movie you know and and the sort of cheap goosing of past trauma that you're talking about with the child dying that's the way how do we make them care about these guys you know we get we got the cheap juice of the of the past trauma it makes it into to a movie and just wants to maneuver between these plot points and sort of doesn't care how it gets there which makes it ruthlessly effective and fun and the actors are phenomenal all three of them are just dynamite yeah. in that movie. I love how with the Billy Zane character, they squished all three of the characters from the book into one guy. <laughs> they just like mushed all three of those characters into one dude. Well, you know, what's funny is having only known the movie before reading the book, 
And knowing that Orson Welles had wanted to film this book, you know, had had effectively filmed most of the book before not finishing the project and thinking like, wait, and and, and starring in it, thinking like, wait, who did Orson Welles play in this? <laughs> There's no way he played the Sam Neill character or or the psychopath. This is weird. And then reading this and going, oh, he's Russell Bellow. Of course, he's the boisterous, loud, obnoxious <laughs> asshole. Perfect casting, Mr. Wells. The guy who's always there with a snide comment. Good yeah. casting, Orson Wells. <laughs> who's sitting back as everyone's trying to like desperately pump water out and being like, well, another fine mess we've gotten ourselves into. You're like, fuck you. I want to punch you in the face so bad. Um. Uh, I will say the problem the book has that the movie does solve. The book has the Captain Blood problem of keeping him and her away from each other for too much of the book. They're such a great duo and you love having them together. It's the moonlight moonlighting season five problem where it's just, you know, it's keeping <laughs> them apart from each other too much. And, and I do think that I like dead calm i can recognize as a better book in a lot of ways i like a ground more i think for the leanness and the terseness of it and having them together it's a story about the two of them it is a love story again in a non-forced way and dead calm just has them separate the whole time which makes it less appealing to me it's like you know the, the, even when happens... they strand them on the island in the ground they have to bring her over there to get them back together <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I kind of i like i guess having read a ground and had you know enjoyed the two of them together and then yeah. there is a real tension in dead calm about oh shit you know because you you do think are they going to both survive this and how yeah. williams does set it up so well that it's going to be so difficult for her to get back to him you know how is yeah. that how is that going to work and i, I think you There's feel 10 times in the book where you're like this is impossible yeah yeah absolutely and i, I know again in the film i think sam neil within about 10 minutes gets the boat running again and is kind of <laughs> going after and and, and in, in this there's this there's pages and pages of them kind of trying to like bail out the the the, the boat isn't there like pay, they go for hours and hours and hours and it doesn't make any difference whatsoever and he's kind of like and then there's a storm coming and everything is just like holy shit how how are they going to get out you know how are they going to survive this or get out of it you know you just and it, it should feel impossible, but I think by the end, you know, it does feel like, okay, you know, I buy it. You know, it's it's a kind of one in a hundred chance that that would happen, but I kind of buy it. These characters are smart and they know what they're doing. You know, I think there's, Ray is described a couple of times in the ground as undefeatable. And I think there is that thing to both of them, which is like, yeah. they will not give in. You know, like I say, they there's moments where John has these kind of like, Oh my God, what's happening on the other boat? And he just tamps it down. No, what I need to think about is right here, right now, what do I need to do to survive to get to the, you know, the next hour, at least what do I need to do to this boat? What do I need to do? Get these other people to do. Yeah. And he very quickly takes command of the, of the boat with, you know, even with this, you know, this blowhard <laughs> asshole Russell <laughs> on there, you know, he, 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 because he, he clearly knows what he's doing and the other two don't. Yeah. Well, even when his expert mind tells him like, we're doomed, like there's nothing I can do to make this work. We're going to, you know, it's going to end. We're drowned. She's not going to be able to make it back to us. He knows it's hopeless, but he keeps going, you know, and he has yeah. that motivation of like, not even his own survival, but like, I need to save her from, you know, this psychopath is great and when you kind of learn more of the backstory about the people on the boat 
and uh, the wife of Bello, who died, you know, drowned somehow after they left him behind <laughs> thoughtlessly. Uh, you kind of appreciate that, like, you know, that environment being with people who are intolerable, you know, yeah. is not only going to be a distraction, but it's going to drive you absolutely crazy. You know, it's going to you know make you completely mad uh, that he can drown, that he can have his expert mind block that out and block out the bellow and all the other things that are happening and like focus specifically on like the problem at hand. Again, it's kind of like shows his character that, you know, he's someone who can not be affected by this environment the way other people are driven to like murder and madness, you know, being aboard a yacht together. For sure. For sure. Yeah, I don't do, I don't I don't know too much about the the Wells adaptation. I know he he filmed most of it, didn't he, with um Shamoro and Lawrence Harvey. Mm-hmm. Um and there is I've seen some bits of footage. I don't know how much footage still exists. Do you guys know? I've only seen like behind the scenes on set photos of it. That's all I all I've ever seen is like Orson Welles hanging out on a boat with a movie camera. That's that's mm-hmm. literally all I've ever seen of it. There are a few clips, there's like a two minute YouTube. I don't know what it's from, if it's from a documentary, but it has a few short clips where you see uh, like a fire and you see Orson, you see Orson Welles get ready to hit him with the bat, which is the introduction to the characters uh, in the book. Uh, So it seems like it's probably follows it pretty closely. And you see uh, Lawrence Harvey playing Huey, you know, over on, you know, uh, driving the boat away with her. So, yeah, it seems like it was probably a much closer adaptation than the Philip Noyce movie ended up being. I mean, it's really, sorry, I was just going to say it's really interesting with Williams in that he must have thought, you know, because Williams only wrote for about 20 years. He died in the early 70s, died um, died by suicide in the early, in the early 70s. After and his had, wife died of cancer. After his wife yeah, died. Yeah. Um, but must have thought, okay, Orson Welles has optioned my novel. <laughs> it's going to be cast. It's going to be great. And then it never gets made. Um, I know the hotspot that he wrote that as a you know he wrote a script adaptation of that, which is what the hotspot movie is based on, and that was originally supposed to be a Robert Mitchum vehicle, and then never got made, and you know only got picked up, you know, decades later, originally by Mike Figgis and then by by Dennis Hopper. So he had some like awful luck in terms of like he's very kind of like you know um, cinematic books as we've described, just not getting off the ground and I, if i you know if either of those films like the mitchum version of oh my um, god a mitchum hotspot would have been a classic would have been i know you can just see him in it you can just see yeah. him in john johnson Roy. you can just you know this this you know um but if either of those had taken off then we might be you know talking about him in a in a much different way now in terms of his you know his renown in terms of in terms of that stuff but it it, it never did you know which is a shame um it's it's funny though he had a of like a lot of writers a contentious relationship to Hollywood and filmmaking. Uh, the French movies have any of you guys seen the 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 French movies based on his work? Confidentially, Confidentially yours, yours is yeah. like my comfort film. Like I put it on when I'm going to sleep all the time. Like I've seen the <laughs> first half hour like 150 times and the whole movie like seven times. You know, and it's I can't imagine it has anything to do with the book whatsoever. Just based on what. Truffaut is and what that movie is it seems so hard to connect it to what I've read of Charles K. Williams now and then actually when we were getting ready to do this podcast I realized I had seen another one I had seen a movie based on a ground and it had been changed so much I didn't put it together at all there's a great Claude Claude Sautet movie with Lino Ventura called The Dictator's Guns that I saw at Film Society years ago when they did a um, Claude Sautet series and it's so different. Like I just 
didn't even i wouldn't have occurred to me that this this movie uh would have been based on it um and then there's also i've never seen there's a marcel belmondo uh or a jean moreau jean moreau jean pel belmondo marcel Ophus movie based on one of his books uh that sautet wrote the script for and i've never seen that one i'm curious to see it now uh marcel is not not the director his dad was but uh you know Moreau and Belmondo is a pretty good pairing and if Sautet wrote the script it it seems like that might be something but it, it's really funny these French filmmakers these are such quintessentially American books these two these two books are like as fucking American as it gets they're very Texan in their nature Texas being the most American you can get I'm sure as a foreigner you you think that way of like what's more American than Texas not a goddamn thing <laughs> Um, and, and it is funny how much they liked adapting these books and, and going to America, even Simonon and Melville going to America, uh, in, in the Belmondo movie, how, a magnet of doom, how fucking much they don't get it is the main thing I would say is that these are very American books and they might turn in to interesting movies, but they're 0% like, essence of the novel american in any way even when trofu does trufo does the woolrich movies it's like they're just they feel like nothing of the book in them even when they have plot points there's another movie i don't know if you've seen it uh, called the man who would not die from 1975 it's based on yet another nautical noir that williams wrote the sailcloth shroud he has a few other ones uh the scorpion wreath aka Gulf Coast Girl and a novel called And the Deep Blue Sea. Stephen, you read it? Scorpion, Scorpion Reef is great. I'd recommend that as a. That's oh, a, excellent. That's that's kind of, I suppose, um, I would situate that in between the kind of like earlier noiry ones and the sort of seafaring ones. It's a good kind of crossover kind of novel. It's great though. It's a really good. It's a really good book. Um, the yeah, I, books with Ray and Ingram, right? These are the only two. No, these are the only two. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, which again, yeah, it's a bit, yeah, it's it's kind of funny that he did, he did those two, and it's well, it is. You sit there and look at the blank page. Okay, further Ray and Ingram adventures are they? I don't know. They they, they find another happily boat. ever after. They, they find another boat, boat with bad guys. Boat. Yeah, and, and John they, goes on to it and is surprised again that there's they, people on. They charter some drug smugglers and run aground. Their boat tries to sink. I got, I got. They come upon a seemingly page. abandoned offshore oil rig. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I yeah, I I I enjoy hanging out with those characters. I, I to be honest, I, I I think they're great. I think they're they're really good. You know, really good together. Like I say, I think they're, you know, you you buy them as a relationship. And I think that all you know, you were talking earlier, John, about the long setup of a ground. I I think that helps. I think it just sells it. I think you buy that these people would. Yeah, because again, you've got this situation where they're forced together. You've got to get them to fall in love within about three or four days, and you and you kind of buy it. You just think, yeah, this is an extreme situation, but you feel like they see how each one handles themselves under pressure, and they like what they see, and they recognize what they see. I, I do appreciate the realism in it too, where it's like you have to have two plane trips out there to make it realistic that they would find the boat. You know, you can't just yeah. have them find it and then get right on it and start the plot going even with the very, very tiny book, like a ground. I mean, these books are super short. Um, you know, you need, you need a little bit of believable buildup to, 
to those situations. Well, I, I think he wrote something like seventeen books in a decade, didn't he? So I think he, you know, there's, there's, <laughs> he, he was, he was knocking them out. So it's yeah. funny that it seems well, so many like of them. There's lot. like Hill seems Girl and of, River yeah. Girl and Mountain yeah. Girl and Old <laughs> Joe and his girls. You know, there's clearly <laughs> like go back to that well over and over. Sorry, John. No, I was just going to say, it's it's funny that it seems like he seems prolific, but it doesn't seem like a lot of books at the same time, maybe just because compared to someone like Thompson or someone who were like super prolific and seminar of books. Yes. Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, I think it's interesting too. I, you know, I've, I've harped on it a little, but this book is very much a uh, dead calm. When we, I feel like when we look back at history of like a genre or history of art, we look at the artists who moved the world. Generally, we look at the Thompsons and the Highsmith in close detail. And we don't as much look at people like Charles K. Williams, who are the guys having the earth moved beneath their feet and trying to catch up. And uh, I came across a quote from Don't Just Stand There, uh, one of his one of his novels. I haven't, I haven't read it, obviously, but he's writing about uh, a washed up writer in the book. And it says it wasn't a lack of talent, but simply a matter of early conditioning and the fact that he was a little too old to adapt. And it feels like he knows more than a lot of writers who are who things are changing like he's aware something is going on and he can't keep up and it seems like a, a sort of pessimistic worldview that is going to end in in suicide but there is a lot of that to dead calm of like something is changing and i don't necessarily get it and mm. i don't know what to do which gives it like a, a, a existential crisis happening in the background like metatextually as you're reading it but i think but i think he does it really well like i say parachuting that kind of high smithian character in yeah. and then having these two much more pragmatic practical characters reckon with him and yeah. and face the sort of you know the, the moral dilemma of what to do about him and and yeah. i found it so interesting in in the book what they choose oh, it's fantastic what they choose to do with him and what they don't choose to do with him and and you know and even as it gets you know there, there's you know once we get to the end and and they all get back on board the the boat and then there is a further discussion with uh Bellow <laughs> about yeah. what to do with huey and he's like you kill him you just kill yeah. him put him yeah. down you know, and you think, and and you've got John and Ray who, <laughs> exhausted, absolutely exhausted, like physically, John's like a wreck, just kind of going, nope. Do you know what I mean? You just think that it would be the easiest thing in the world for him to kind of go, yeah, just kill him, drop him overboard. Do you know what I mean? Or just not, turn a blind eye, just be like, turn a blind it's no eye. longer my problem. Yeah, exactly. And 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 he won't. And just that strong kind of moral view is is yeah, I find you know fascinating. It's also fascinating to put it in the context of what's happening in in real life, the world of crime, when a ground is 1960, dead calm is 1963. There is a massive worldwide crime boom. The numbers, when you actually go back in crime between 1960 and 1963, are so shocking that this is something John and I talk about a lot, is like the new crime is happening. The idea, not just that there's more crime in the world, but that it's somehow different in nature. It's not like hold up men, you know, robbing a, a liquor store to get their money. It's like screwdriver wielding psychopaths coming from their hippie cult to kill you in their sleep. You know, like there's something different happening in crime. 
And it is fascinating to see Charles K. Williams deal with that change in crime that's clearly going on beneath his feet and trying to say, no, the good people still don't just kill a guy for revenge. You know, there's an almost, uh, you know, old Western-ish, you know, like family-friendly Western sense of like frontier justice to like, we don't string them up. We keep the the lynch mob at bay from these people and we put them in prison. And that's what Ingram embodies in a very fine, and Ray embody yeah. in, in a pretty fundamental way. Yeah, great books. Any last thoughts on a ground in uh, Dead Calm? Or should we get into our dessert pairings? Let's uh, get into... Oh, yeah, I said <laughs> my piece. Yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. Um, my dessert pairing with Deadcom specifically, uh, which, is you know, again, is a book about people who drive each other crazy and like, you know, a very uh, contained environment, a very uh, combustible sort of situation going on within this small group would be a film called My Brother Has Bad Dreams. <laughs> which is a pretty shoddy film, but it's one I kind of love. Uh, it's directed by Bob Emery, and it's about this these this adult sibling couple who live in a house together, and uh, the and the, the guy's going slowly crazy. Very Huey-esque, very Huey-esque, I would say. Um, again, I was so taken aback by the characterization of Huey in the book compared to the Billy Zane character in the novel. It was kind of shocking to me like to have this character be specifically a Perkins Ripley kind of um, delusional, paranoid man child. And that's the kind of character that we meet in um, My Brother Has Bad Dreams. Uh, just the idea that these four people who are stuck in this situation together, this domestic situation together, that uh, one of them, that, that the Huey character latches on to the guy's wife uh, as a mother figure which, you know, makes his wife jealous, you know, like, like drives her into like kind of like a sexual frenzy against against him uh, that she would even consider, you know, sleeping with this other horrible guy that she can't stand just as like a reaction to that, which all culminates, uh, you know, in this crazy story of uh, Huey and the wife being in this uh, in the water getting left behind. And when they find him, you know, he is totally uh shell-shocked and and she's nowhere to be found he says oh there was a shark that, that bit her in half that came and killed her and has this fantastic story when it clearly what had happened was that he had a freak out and you know uh, you know by accident you know clearly knocked her out and she drowned uh even my brother has bad dreams ends with this bizarre almost fantastical sort of situation where he uh, jumps into the water and gets eaten by sharks <laughs> <laughs> and so of course that's all i could think of was like are those sharks real at the end of my brother has bad dreams or is like this just like the the pinnacle of his 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 madness is that you know he, he imagines himself throwing himself into a random uh off a random port in an ocean and getting eaten by sharks uh so everything sort of the kind of psychological aspect of this book very much uh very much a play in this movie that i that i admire great it's Chris. It's, it's quite something that movie it's something <laughs> we came um i programmed that movie once um yeah my pick i was going to say i'll say what i'm not picking first i almost picked a williford because we haven't mentioned huey was an artist right and when he starts talking about art or art later on you realize he's very sophisticated in many ways and has like a rich interior life and williford 
Loves Gauguin's Polynesian paintings. Yeah. Uh, Williford with Sideswipe, The Pickup, Burnt Orange Heresy, even The Woman Chaser. He had a lot of books that were about like Hueys in some way, like psychotic artists, like who artists who somehow are crossing over into the realm of violence and crime. That's a, a popular Williford theme. But I feel like ah, I don't want that. I was also going to say Benito Serino, the Herman Melville short story or novella, which is about a captain that's coming over to a ship that's in distress and he gets on board and he can't figure out what's happening. Something's clearly going on, but he's interpreting everything exactly wrong, which is he can't understand that the slaves have revolted and taken over the ship. It's just not within his mental power to process that they were capable of doing this, right? And so there's a similar, like, getting on a ship and, like, what's Huey's deal? What's this guy's fucking problem? What is the actually going on here? And like you, John, having only seen the movie, when they go over and people are alive there, that's quite a shock when you're reading the book. You're like, oh, <laughs> I was wrong. I thought I knew what was happening. I'm, I'm you know, I'm fucking Benito Serino here. Um, but what I am going to pick, I think, is the most obvious pairing for this to a point where I was worried one of you guys would pick it, which is Roman Polanski's Knife in the Water, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. Which is about a young couple who pitches up a blonde hitchhiker who's boyish and sort of uh, a feat in some way and is a wedge that gets driven between them out when they go sailing and leads to sort of, uh, you know, psychological violence, deprivation, that kind of thing out on the water between them. And it's so, that character in particular is so similar to Huey and sort of like his manner and bearing and the way he plays on the woman's feminine instincts and appeals to him in a sort of like motherly way. His boyishness has a, has a sexiness that arouses something in her that's both matronly and girlish right that's what huey does to ray as well in this that and all the women in it apparently and this movie is very much about that I, they're so similar that i would say he must have seen knife in the water before he wrote this book but timeline wise i just don't think there's any way that's possible because the book comes out in 63 and knife in the water is made in in 62 or 61 and but it doesn't really get internationally shown much until 63 i think so i think there's no way they influence each other but it is one of those harmonic harmonic convergences that's so they're so similar that you're like something was happening in the culture and these two separate artists identified it really clearly i definitely thought about knife in the water and Benito serino and <laughs> billy budd as well it's almost like ingram yeah. is like if claggart was a hero <laughs> he would be john ingram He's a hero in some ways. No, he's Veer. That's who he is in Billy yeah. Hudd. <laughs> True. Well, I'm going to take a, yeah. A, yeah, a slightly different tack in terms of if if after reading these books, you've got a real Jones for like a man and a woman getting themselves, thinking themselves out of desperate situations. Um, I'm a big fan of the Modesty Blaze series. Oh, yeah. Strip and the novels, um, which has Modesty Blaze and her right-hand man, Willie Garvin, and obviously these are adventure novels, you know, they're, they're kind of, you know, there's, she's the former head of a kind of uh, crime syndicate who's now retired. Willie Garvin was her right-hand man who's now, you know, weapons expert. And I love 
Monty Blaze. I love the relationship between the two of them. This is a platonic relationship, which is always very, very um, stressed in the books. It's not a sexual relationship. They're not. They're not partners. In fact, they often go off and have sex with other people, or, or like continually throughout the books with other people. With no, no sense of jealousy between them. It's 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 a really fascinating relationship. But a lot of the you know, especially in the novels, are about you know, one or other of them being trapped in a situation that they have to think their way out of, you know, and they have to use the resources around them. You know, they're often kidnapped, stripped down to literally nothing and have to think their way out of a situation. If you enjoy that kind of stuff <laughs> of people being put in desperate, obviously in, in the later novels, it kind of gets a bit goofy. There's some situations where you kind of go, yeah, I, I don't really buy that. You know, the, I think there's a scene where Willie Garvin gets pushed out of an aircraft where he's tied to a chair and you think i'm not sure that the way he survives that i would i would <laughs> i would buy <laughs> um but in the earlier in the earlier novels that uh, you know including the first one modesty blaze in 1963 i think um they're you know that yeah they're, they're just full of of these very practically minded people who again don't panic in situations they get into desperate situations and they very calmly think their way out of it how do i survive this how do i get out of this and i i love reading them so you would kind of recommend the series in general is there any particular book that would be like a good gateway i've always wanted to get into these books i mean start I, I think sure. start with the first one start with modesty blaze and i think okay. that the, yeah, the, the first kind of five or six are all are, are all kind of great um a taste for death actually is my probably my favorite one i think that's fourth or fifth novel um but yeah, they're just they're they're great characters. It's a great relationship. There's again, what's interesting is there is there is also a kind of moral sense within them as well that's very sort of similar. It's not yeah, you know, with James Bond, somebody like James Bond, he will just kill without thinking. Do you know what I mean? There's about you know, and you see it, you know, in the film adaptations, oftentimes you're thinking, why the hell did he kill that guy? <laughs> <laughs> Was there any threat whatsoever? But in the Modesty Blaze books, they're they're you know, they will kill if they need to and if they don't need to they will they will not and there will be a discussion about that there will be a kind of moral sense and there'll be you know modesty blaze is often tasked to work for the uk government and it will not be a given that she will you know because the, the uk government's um kind of uh uh you know what they want may not be may not coincide with what she wants if it does <laughs> she might help if it doesn't there are there are certain stories where she completely goes against them and says no i'm going to do the opposite of, of what you've asked me to do because that's the moral thing to do in this situation so yeah i think they're they're fascinating um fascinating characters and he's very good peter o'donnell at describing fight scenes and describing action yeah, you know, there are lengthy fight scenes within within the books where yeah he knows about weapons. Oh, you know, I don't know about weapons, and maybe he's making. <laughs> he just kind of, he knows enough to fool a reader like me that he knows what he's thinking about. You know, um, knows what he's talking about. So you know, there are knife fights. You know, uh, there are kind of hand to hand fights that that are all very precisely described, so you can you can see it kind of happening. Um, the film is if you've ever yeah. seen. I, I was going to ask you, how does it compare? It doesn't. I mean, they're not. It's just not the same. It's just you know. Obviously, they've just gone. This is a comic book character. They're goofy. It's all. Do you know what I mean? It, there, there is a kind of, despite the kind of 
the sort of setup there there is a seriousness to the novels you know that that you don't get in, in in the film there is a kind of emotional kind of like connection between the two characters and there is this kind of you know they are adventure books they are you know globe trotting you know with gadgets and fight scenes and that kind of stuff but i think there's there's a much more kind of human um element to them than you get from from the movie is vd good casting Mm. <laughs> no i mean i <laughs> I, w- I wouldn't have said so uh, it's uh i i, I you know, I think I did. I wrote a post years ago, which did, which imagined that um, Modesty Blaze had been like um, the fifty-year franchise instead of James Bond, and I did a whole set of fantasy casting for Modesty Blaze. <laughs> <laughs> she, she, she wasn't on there, but um, but yeah, I, I yeah, I, I, I think yeah, you know, you know, start with the first one, see see how you get on. But I, I love those characters. Excellent, great. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time to revisit these books with us. I'm. I'm all in on Charles Williams. Can't wait to read some more of his books. Uh, it's been great. Um, any projects you want to mention uh, upcoming? You want to talk about your fat friend a little bit? Um, since uh, it's coming yeah, out my wife. Pretty soon? Yeah, my wife uh, is a documentary maker and her new movie, um, Your Fat Friend, about the um, blogger, uh, writer and podcast host Aubrey Gordon is coming out um, in the new year um in the uk and the and the us so yeah to look out for that that's a fantastic film she's a really interesting character and you know genie's a great filmmaker um i'm hopefully going to be shooting something next year but i can't talk too much about it at the moment but yeah fingers <laughs> excellent crossed. that's always good news when you can't talk about something <laughs> <laughs> thanks always again exciting. for doing this was a lot of fun and introducing us to these two books I don't think I would have ever started with them if I had just been picking at random, and I'm I'm really glad I read them. Oh, no, it's an absolute pleasure. And, yeah, always good to speak to you guys. Excellent. I'll see you guys for our trip to the uh, through the Pacific on our schooner that's uh, <laughs> obviously been inspired. I think I know enough now about sailing that I can get yeah. us across the ocean. I'll be in charge of the gun running. <laughs> <laughs>